2: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Today we're joined by Leslie Southwick-Trask. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates, a firm focusing on executive advisory services. I'm also an author, a speaker, and a coach, and the co-author of a nine-book series on helping leaders innovate how they lead, which is the foundation for this radio show. So my passion is helping leaders Yes. Update their leadership algorithm at the same rate as the challenges they are facing in their world. So, having watched leaders not thrive because they focus so much on the work and missed the requirement to update their leadership skills, I really wanted to create an opportunity for leaders to gain that additional information in a way that is not so time consuming and very direct and relevant to what they're looking for. And I think Leslie is a perfect guest to help in that adventure. One, she's brilliant, and she's had a very interesting and high-impact career. So she was a baby boomer who entered the field of business with a wide array of choices. She started actually as in our first job as an on-air radio manager in Ottawa. When she graduated from college with an anthropology degree, she de- Decided not to stay in radio. In 1981, she founded the Proactive Group of Companies, starting with in the oil and gas sector, and then broadening into all sectors, public, private, as well as NGOs. Within four years, they became a national consulting firm with offices in Calgary, Toronto, Ottawa, and Halifax, specializing in strategic positioning. Over the years, her background as an anthropologist shaped the services and products they offered to over 500 clients and continuing to position themselves in increasingly complex markets. Their additional specialty was helping them transform their organizations from Everything from national defense strategy to launching the second most successful pharmaceutical launch, uh, Plavix, which was, of course, uh, where Viagra came from. As the CEO of a blended organization, Leslie had the experience firsthand from leadership the kind of leadership that was a roll-up-your-sleeves and where the consequence of the decision she and her husband made had a direct impact on their business, their family, and also the success and failure of the companies to which they consulted. The good news is, when, when we're counting on consulting firms, that Leslie and her husband created the kind of firm that we are lucky to have Uh, They have been amazingly successful. Uh, She was awarded the top 100 most powerful women in Canada in the category of entrepreneur and trailblazer, which was a lifetime recognition. Her role as CEO of RDI and Proactive brought her recognition as one of the top 50 CEOs in Atlantic Canada and one of the top 100 women business owners in Canada. Her passion for pushing the envelope with change agents was acknowledged by becoming one of the top 25 faces in Halifax and one of the 14 thinkers to watch by Progress Progress Magazine. So that sets the stage that Leslie is truly a trailblazer. And as we think about how do leaders stay current – Looking to Leslie for her lessons learned is a great place to start, so Leslie, can you give us some a little bit more about your business history and first, thank you for joining us. What a delight that we are able to uh, share your wisdom broadly in addition to the radio show that you already host
3: well thanks maureen i 'm so happy to be with you today and uh what a what a pleasure to have this time to share. Um as I listened to your introduction I got tired. <laughs> and it 's all about you, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think about you know I mean uh, what, what I must be a hundred years old and uh, and yes it 's been a very, very interesting um, lifetime of chapters, you know different chapters of different parts of my career that you know create the book of life that you end up experiencing, so each chapter brought a whole lot of different sort of awarenesses and understanding of the marketplace and what was needed. But there's been some consistency all the way through of the kind of major lessons that seem to be timeless in the way in which they show up.
2: And so what are a couple of those major lessons for
3: you that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, There are two. Uh, The first is that there is nothing new in the field of leadership. What's different is the fact that, or not different, but what hasn't happened is that we're applying or actually doing what we know we need to do. I mean, we've been talking about employee engagement uh, for the last 30 years of my career. It was a standard you know, raise on debt for what a leader has to do. And yet, you know, the most recent study that I read has only 15 percent, and this is a global research study, only about 15 percent of employees are highly engaged. That's one five. And 65 percent are on the fence and the rest are not engaged at all. And so it's not that we don't know what we have to do. It's that we don't do it. And so that's lesson number one. And lesson number two is something that I learned over the years as an anthropologist was that, you know, we talked about and we advertised in our firm about doing cultural change. And in reality, you do not change a culture. Cultures are so deeply embedded in the belief system of the people that what as a leader we have to do is align the beliefs that are showing up in the people that we're attracting to the beliefs of the marketplace. And if you don't have a match, you don't have a match. <laughs> and you have to bite the bullet and either shift what you're doing in the market or shift the employee groups that are not aligning. So to, you know, for years, we did training of how to do a cultural change. And, you know, thinking that we could actually shift these deeply embedded beliefs by taking them to workshops, by embedding, you know, on, on day-to-day coaching. And yet, these very powerful belief systems always take hold. And that's something that, you know, I had to learn the hard way is that, yes, you could get a short-term change, but very difficult to get long-term sustainability if you're asking people to change their belief system.
2: Okay. And that seems a bit, yeah, I'm, I'm having a reaction because I do coach and I have seen people change. And I've oh, seen I'm them not- change their belief systems, but not well, everyone.
3: Yes. I, now, let me just clarify. Okay. You can change certain beliefs. Uh, absolutely, no question about it. So do I believe that I'm unworthy and do I believe now that I'm worthy? Yes. I mean, do I believe that the customer has the dominant position in creating the market? Uh, Maybe I start with not believing that the customer knows what they're doing and I know everything and then I shift to believing that the customer does have a a right to what they want in the marketplace. (laughs) Those, those Those are beliefs that we can fundamentally make a shift in. Having said that, to take large-scale groups of people and try to bring them to a whole new belief about the market, what they're producing, how they're producing it, takes unbelievable leadership skill. Mm-hmm. And where I think we have a dearth is in the leadership qualities that are needed to do that. So when I say that cultures can't be changed, what I'm really saying is is that the kind of leadership work that's needed is a very small percentage of leaders that I've met who have the wherewithal of knowing how to do that because it is such a powerful, fundamental area of human existence around the core beliefs that cause us to survive. Totally got it. Having worked just with individual
2: coaching, it's a significant amount of one-on-one effort to to help transition beliefs, doable if they want to, but not without major one-on-one time investment.
3: And that's where, you know, we're seeing that, uh, again, on the global stage, you know, the increased investment that is being put into developing. I mean, the majority of investment needs to go to the front line leadership because the front line uh, is responsible for 80 percent of the workforce. So if you've got that kind of ratio, you really have to be very capable of bringing that engagement, for example, factor up. And yet we're seeing that even though we know we need to engage people, the actual ability to sustainably pull that off is still struggling. And and I
2: wonder, to your point, this is not new stuff. This is stuff I've been thinking about or reading about since I started working in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And yet I taught a class two weeks ago. And one of the the primary focuses was employee engagement, and for many people, it was it was a new concept. Mm. Isn't
3: that so fascinating?
2: It it is, and I wonder. You know, I've got to say, as as people who are me, not you, working in the space of leadership education, something has has gone amiss. If this great research is available that fundamentally shifts how leaders lead and having, and, you know, here's an example. I worked with a client, uh, all of the Gallup engagement stuff was available. This was a few years ago. And one of the senior executives, the company president, in fact, still thought that people, like if he heard laughter, clearly people were not working and they were to be sent back to work because mm-hmm. they were messing around and not doing the right thing. So for him, there was no acknowledgement of having a best friend at work or any of that stuff. That was cheating the company.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. And and the notion that, that people actually engage in, I mean, let me give you an example. And you mentioned um, Plavix. Plavix is actually a beta blocker dealing with um, – preemptive strike on strokes. So it was what we did is we led the most significant pharmaceutical launch, the number two, the number one was of course Viagra. Oh got it. Okay. <laughs> so, Sorry for misstating no, no, that. No, 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 no. That's totally fine. Um, but to 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 the point is that we had a group of in, in this particular intervention, we had from everywhere from scientists who are working in the lab through to the frontline sales positions in in the organization, the pharmaceutical reps. And what we realized we had to do was to shift their understanding of what actually happens in the primary, primary care office, the physician's office, when somebody comes in with a stroke condition and they're trying to ascertain what exactly they need to do. So, we hired a group of actors, you know, nothing new. People do this all the time. Hired a group of actors with this, with a number of stroke conditions, and had them role play what, if they were a physician, would they be doing in order to understand what the implication of this drug would be on these folks, and what would be the positioning that they would want to have the physician do. And they were stuck. They just, could not move past the fact that the physician actually was working with a diagnostic model that did not naturally move to their drug. And Hmm. it took an enormous amount of effort for them to having put themselves in the shoes of the person that they were selling to, who has a 15 to 20 minute time frame to do this in, to actually understand all of this literature that they were giving this position to understand and work with and then position their drug in this unbelievable short time frame was, un- was not possible. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is that it's this engagement, uh, understanding fully what the people, what they are living with, what they are understanding to be their reality is often very difficult for us if it's not our reality, Totally
2: got it, I think that 's a brilliant observation the, uh, and it 's not what we learned in school
3: well no and 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 and, and to that point um, it's it 's changing the mind frame, and I think that 's where i 'm saying you know I said that it 's really difficult for us to do a cultural change when we 're asking people to shift beliefs if we think it 's just about beliefs because it 's about the mindset that we have about the situation that we're in. So as an example, when I was asked to come into national defense in a situation where our, our forces had come back from a particularly dysfunctional and grueling operating theater, uh, they came back feeling totally demoralized about their role and about their uniform. And they were being asked to step up again and enter into the world stage in a different type of Canadian force, we knew that we could not have them tell their stories of what was going on overseas because the culture is one of tell no secrets, tell no ah, lies. So in order to break that, in order and not for us to break it to the public, but to have them start to, in some respects honor what their experience had been i brought in uh, a well-known actor and producer his name is john dunsworth anybody who knows ever watched trailer park boys he's mr leahy anyway he's a very well-known actor and a very good producer and i asked him to come in and teach them how to tell a story not through telling the story but through visualizing a scenario in which You have to convey it, but not in your total normal cultural way. And he trained them in acting methods that, at first, they were, as you can imagine, completely skeptical about. But he's such an engaging director that he broke through and had them start to tell the stories of what they had lived through through an acting presence. And that... Two days later, they put on a a tell-all, and there was not a dry eye. <laughs> there were 75 people involved in this intervention, from three-star general down to frontline warrior, as well as civilian. And they're, they're I guess, living proof of what they had experienced. For those who hadn't experienced but needed to appreciate the experience and the letting go of what those stories had for them was unbelievable in terms of its power. And so we had to shift the mind frame of tell no secrets, tell no lies to there are ways and means of letting go of what's crippling us, what's setting our mind to be in a certain frame of reference that allows us to free ourselves to open for something different to experience.
2: Leslie, that is a brilliant story. We're going to go to break right now and then we're going to come back and pick up on the themes I've heard thus far. The The underlying theme of How do I engage people, the idea of of cultural change and what we can and can't do, and how that connects to shifting mind frames? Because a lot of the innovative leadership stuff is foundationally built on the idea of of mindsets. Mm. And and for leaders to make the changes we're trying to make, it is a mindset shift. It's not... It followed by behavior, but yes, foundationally it's mindset. So let's go to break. As soon as we come back, Leslie and I will talk more about this mind frame or mindset shifts.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit metcalf-associates.com.
0: Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guests today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: Welcome back. This is Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Leslie Southwick-Trask. Leslie just walked us through an example Of their uh, military, uh, the Canadian military, returning from conflict and changing how they told their story, which is foundationally built in changing mindsets. So, Leslie, can you tell us a little more about this idea of mindset shift? Because, again, this is so, I think, foundationally linked to how leaders develop, and earlier in the conversation, you made the point that in culture change, there were very few leaders who have the skill to, on a large scale, make that change. And I think, again, tying to some of the Leader 2050 mindset competencies, the research would suggest that between one and a half and five percent of leaders have that capacity. So. Mm. Uh, it, so what you're saying is completely, and not shockingly, uh, aligned with the research that we've been talking about.
3: So so it is, it is aligned, and I, I would say, I, I don't want to, you know, paint a, a, a negative brush here. I, I want to say that I've met outstanding leaders. I think we're putting an enormous amount on their shoulders And I think that the expectation of how you and I as regular human beings have to not only shift our mindset, but help, you know, huge numbers of people who work with us shift theirs is a really tough expectation. And I think it needs different types of stimuli for it to work. So I mentioned in my previous example about how we brought a director in, excuse me, Uh, to actually take them out of context. And I think that's where it really begins, is taking people out of context so that they have to rely on some native distinct abilities. And another example of that is where we were asked to do a merger of a number of telecommunication companies who had to come together and create one aligned organization they were struggling in terms of the cultural rub that was occurring between these various not only different corporations but different geographic locations what we did is and by the way <laughs> it was not none of my work is done without huge resistance so it takes takes huge trust that i have to build for people to go where i'm going and we took them to an art museum and a curated art museum, and had the uh, the, the curator walk us through a number of different forms of artwork, and what she did is that she explained what really was going on in terms of form and function, and how different forms were stimulating different parts of the brain to attract it to go to different parts of the painting. You know, we went to abstract as well as conventional, traditional art. There was an engineer who was standing at the back with his arms crossed, completely, apparently disengaged, and took me aside and he said, I can't handle this. Uh, This is just way out of my comfort zone. I have no idea where you're going. If you'd asked us to create a Gantt chart of what we're doing I would be comfortable (laughs) but this is like insane and I think I'm gonna have to go and I said you know what you're free to do whatever you want but if there's anything here that stimulates you just allow it to find its home in you like just you know see where it can go the next morning he comes in he brings with him this blueprint this massive blueprint and on it is this in this absolutely unbelievable diagram and he says here's how the merger could happen and he walks all of us through it and it was brilliant and i said how did you come up with that he said i let the art find a home in me
2: how beautiful
3: so so i guess my point is is that as leaders, we think we have to we have to do it through, you know, the conventional way of training. Here's here's the workshop conversation, let's go into mm. a small group, let's try and figure this out. And we're staying with the common intelligences that we use on a day-to-day basis. And we're not using the other parts of us that are ready to show up. If the others are stripped away from us, it's like, you know, it's, it's like the high ropes course, you know, where I have to, I have to go up that pole and dangle with a teammate and nothing that I've ever learned is going to teach me how to do that except doing it. It's, it's putting people into a situation where they are forced to bring parts of themselves out that they are not used to bringing out
2: so i want to go back to something you said at the beginning or at the beginning of this segment putting enormous expectations on the shoulders of leaders so to me i now talk about this as We are in an era with the massive amount of change, for some people, massive chaos, depending on their situation. And because of that chaos, we as the people in roles of leadership and emerging leadership have an unprecedented opportunity to make an impact on the world. It didn't matter how good I was in 1950, Mm -hmm. I couldn't make the impact because the level of stability precluded it. So now you and I are living in a time where because of the the volatility and, and again, some people would call chaos – we have an opportunity that's astounding. And then to tie into this idea of unconventional solutions, that those older solutions or conventional solutions no longer work in this mm-hmm. volatile time. Yes. What I did even five years ago yes. doesn't work. Or doesn't work the way it did back then. I mean, look at our, the U.S. Federal Reserve and the, the range of solutions. They're deploying things that didn't exist probably a decade ago.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
2: And so you and I talked a while back about this idea of the mind of the scientist. And that as a scientist, I am willing to go places that as a conventional leader, I would never touch
3: absolutely that's fair and you know you you've you've said a a great deal to me about that and I love that example because what it does is it puts me into the mind frame of somebody that doesn't know the solution but is curious about finding it and I think that if I put myself into that mind frame I give myself the latitude to experiment and when I experiment I give myself even further latitude to try and fail and try and make it better the next time and learn from what I'm doing. And I think that's what I'm saying about taking us outside of the described roles that we see ourselves in and saying, okay, that's, this is me. No, no, no. I can actually be someone else if I so choose to allow that to, to for me to experience that part of me not
2: only can i be but again to build on your engineering story his stepping out of his comfort zone based on the curated art experience gave him access to probably a kind of neural pathways in his brain that he hadn't explored before and that created the opening to go somewhere, merging his deep expertise with an openness to trying something new that facilitated a brilliant outcome that would not have happened in a conference room.
3: And to your point on that is that he allowed himself to for a moment believe that the curator was an expert in what she was talking about. And he could respect that. So it wasn't that he was listening to somebody who had just some same idea as he did about what art was, he actually was learning something different than what he would normally go and learn about. And this is one of the things that I used to say in training is that, you know, in terms of the people that show up at training events, a large percent of us us show up at events where we know we're going to do well in, which means we've already done it. Mm Mm-hmm. To show up into learning something that we know nothing about forces us into the mind of the scientist, into the mind of the experimenter. And so it gives us, again, the latitude to discover parts of ourselves that have yet to show up. And this is what I mean by allowing ourselves to give, realize that there is so much more to us than we have allowed ourselves to discover to this point.
2: I want to leverage something you said there because it is that willingness to step outside of our comfort zone as leaders, right? People are looking to us for answers, and yet you and I have both stepped into places where we had, I'm assuming, no earthly clue, but could pull on the resources of smart and experience in other realms to figure stuff out.
3: Well, exactly. In fact, in, in my particular case, I became a, man- a supervisor of integrated funds in investment for Manulife many, many years ago. And then I was promoted to a manager. And what that meant is that my office got bigger. But I, <laughs> had, I had less skill than I did than I could possibly imagine. And I went and said to the Human Resources Department, I mean – you have to do something for me. I, I'm going to lose all these people that applied for my job and, and, and not get anything out of them because I have no clue what I'm doing with them. And so that was what began my journey into management development is that I ended up going to the University of Toronto, working with them on a, on a management development program and realized how much I loved what we were doing. And that's how I shifted my career in that case. And I think this is what I'm saying is that we, we say to people, you have now more responsibility, and yet we are not giving them the unconventional tools to allow them to progress.
2: And again, I think that's such an important point, point. And, and reading a lot of the literature, my focus is often on the unconventional, and yet to get a client to take the risk of doing something that's out of the norm because if they invest in it and it fails, then they need to go to their executives or their board and explain how they did this unusual art thing. Or in my case, I did improv training because I struggled as a public speaker. I was terrified of people, which is not helpful.
3: <laughs> so. Dude, not exactly. <laughs> but Good on you to realize that. Yeah, the
2: first time I was in front of people, my microphone didn't work. People started to leave. And I was grateful they were leaving. I wish they would all have left because I was scared. (laughs) Clearly not very effective. I needed to get that under control. And so I didn't do the conventional approach, which would have been something like Toastmasters. I went to improv classes. And it was interesting for me as a business leader way outside of what I would do. But it was what I needed, again, to build the neural pathways in my brain. My brain was not wired. The first time I think I did a big presentation in public was in a teen beauty pageant. And nobody knows this, or very few people. (laughs) I wasn't a traditional girl, so I didn't realize that I was supposed to like tap dance or something. My skill, how to use a blowtorch.
3: Oh, I love it. Did you win? Oh God! No, <laughs> complete failure. Complete failure. Well, what an experience! <laughs> yes. I mean, oh, I would have much rather watch that talent than watching somebody with a baton. Truly, <laughs> <laughs> you,
2: you should have been one of the judges, because after that, I was then terrified when I realized how uninformed I was about what girl talents look like. I was horror. I mean, just humiliated oh. by this whole thing. Yeah. So, oh my goodness! <laughs> so standing <laughs> up in example? front of people. <laughs> not not my thing. And yet the direction my career was going required it. So it's taking an unconventional approach that I could navigate. And I think all of us can think back to barriers to our development and ask the question, because we're all called to be outside of our comfort zones. Yes. So what are those opportunities to grow in a way that doesn't kill our career. Fortunately, my, you know, blow up was when I was 12 or 14.
3: Yeah, that's early on.
2: <laughs> it left an undelible mark <laughs> in my psyche. I was going to
3: say, not, that age is what, it's like a massive trauma at that age. So. <laughs>
2: And so let's go to break now, but I guess closing, not to make this about my uh, fear of public speaking, but the idea that as leaders, we are all called to be in situations now that are dreadfully uncomfortable, and in some cases, potentially painful and humiliating, and we don't have a choice. We need to continue to grow, and for our organizations to thrive, we need to get over it. And find a way to do that that's safe and appropriate so that all of the people counting on us get what they deserve, which is an effective organization, not a leader who is afraid to do part of his or her job.
3: Right on. Absolutely
2: true. So as we come back, I would love to hear a little bit more about the Women Who Lead show and some of what you are taking away from the interviews you're doing.
3: Great.
2: So we'll go to break now and be back momentarily with Leslie Southwest Trask.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com.
0: How is your marketing going? Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Not so good? What could you be doing wrong? you spent a lot of time and money on your marketing, tried to follow what other successful people are doing, and yet your business marketing plan is still coming up short. Try something new. Tune into Extreme Exposure, the power of personality marketing with host Jackie McLennigan, live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It just might work for you
1: business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you are listening to innovative leaders driving thriving organizations to reach maureen metcalf or her guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: Welcome back. This is Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Our guest is Leslie Southwick Trask. And again, what a delight to have you join us. Uh, During break, we were talking about things we're doing that are unconventional. So why don't you share your latest adventure?
3: Well, it started um, actually with the death of my husband. And I was uh, not dealing with that particularly well, given that he had been my business partner, the father of my children. Uh, and everything that I had to do in my life. And uh, I I met a person who had said to me, well, you know, when in this situation, you need to walk. And I said, yeah, well, what does that mean? I take my dog for a walk? And he said, no, you you need to not only do that, because your dog needs it, but you need to walk the Camino de Santiago. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, you know, you sort of walk anywhere from... 500 kilometers to you know a thousand and I I just said what like who does that I mean that sounds like insanity to me and uh, he said no that's actually something you need to consider and it was I said well I'm way too busy I've got so many contracts I'm just I'm trying to keep my head above the water it's not going to be possible and I had a contract that all of a sudden uh, was postponed and he said to me okay well you have no more excuses. Now you should go. And so two weeks later, I was in the Lisbon airport, we decided to do the Camino uh, Portuguese. And I put my backpack on for the first time in that airport. Oh, my goodness. So I proceeded to walk 880 kilometers. and, And that's when you learn that it's one foot after the other. Like, there are days where you just don't know how you're going to push through the fatigue or the sense of, uh, you know, where is the next coffee shop? And (laughs) you realize that it's all around, like nature is all around you. I thought I was, I took my iPod thinking I'd listen to music and I ended up never wearing it and just listening to the birds and listening to the, the chickens and the space around me, which was unbelievably beautiful and on that walk I we stopped at a particular place that was a fallen down ruin and I thought it was fascinating so I took some pictures and finished my walk went back to Canada and found myself at a very interesting place because just before I finished I felt completely empty and I had no clue about anything I didn't want my career. I didn't want to live in the same city. I knew that nothing that I had known was going to be what my future was going to be. But I had no idea what it was. And I was told that the real Camino begins when your walk ends. So the aha does not happen on the walk. The emptying happens on the walk to open yourself up to what is supposed to come in next. And little did I know that when I was downloading my pictures, this ruin came up and it had a for sale sign, which I had not seen when I was here. I just for a lark emailed the real estate agent and said, What does a ruin go for in Portugal? (laughs) And uh, he wrote me back, which I didn't think he was going to do. And the next thing I know, two months later, arrive in Porto, walk again back into this property, which is about 200 kilometers, and walked onto the land and said, I'm home. Oh my goodness. And I, from that moment on, I had shut down my business. I told my children I was moving to Portugal, took three years to renovate. And now we run an 18-bed albergue on the Camino de Santiago. Eight, eight kilometers before Valencia and the border between Portugal and Spain. Which I am totally coming to visit you at. And we're totally <laughs> going to do a leadership program here because we've got 18 beds and 11 acres and we're on the walk. Um, and so I guess what I, the unconventional piece to, for me was that I I would never have considered... 880 kilometers and if i'd known i was going to do 880 kilometers i probably wouldn't have started i i had to do it one day at a time one coffee shop at a time one night in an alberg at a time if i i had to do it so that i could manage each step to my comfort level. And as I got more and more comfortable, my distance increased and my sense of bravery in terms of, of, of walking solo for a couple of days was, you know, I mean, these are things that you, I guess what I'm saying is, is that you, you break a pattern and then you open yourself up to breaking it further, but not necessarily in one bite.
2: I I think that's a really important Observation. I, I, we share this, uh, maybe not love of, this kind of hiking and, and walking as a way of transformation. I climbed Kilimanjaro uh, right as I started my business. Whoa. And it, it also shaped foundationally. The first time I did something like this was Costa Rica. And I, the first day I was worried about getting my boots wet. What I discovered over the course of... <laughs> Yeah, for anyone who hikes, (laughs) unavoidable. And I was wearing leather boots from high school, old leather boots. So I was, my feet were wet for seven days or however many days our hike was.
3: The entire time, yes.
2: And uh, collapse after collapse, we had, we ran out of water the first day. We had people falling into a, uh, creak out of exhaustion at points. We just had all kinds of things go wrong. And what I learned on that first one, the Costa Rica one, was things I was afraid of were not scary, or or they were still scary, but they're overcomable. Yes. That, yeah. that, that every day, next coffee shop, next step, that if I were to look at one quality that differentiated me, it, it's the, oh, my goodness, I am terrified. I'm in a cave with no light and bats oh. are flying at my head, literally. Oh. And there's nothing I can do, right? I am here now. <laughs> and and I, so this is it. This is it. (laughs) Got to go forward. There's no place else to go. Uh, And putting myself there physically allowed me to do that also in a a physically much less stressful environment, but professionally much more stressful. Bats are nothing compared to boards in some ways.
3: (laughs) Oh, I I would say that's very true. Uh, That's very true. Indeed. (laughs) I've been been on, on a number of boards and have did a, uh, one of the areas that I've specialized in is governance. And um, that is a, you know, governing is a very interesting domain, which at some other time, we can talk more about that.
2: It would be interesting, because I have as well. And I usually enter during turnaround situations. So I'm probably one of those people folks are afraid of in some spots.
3: Yes. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, just in sense of that for a second, you can't govern something that you don't understand. And I've found so many boards where the people come because they've governed or led other businesses and they sit in the boardroom and think that that by looking at the financial pages statements and by having different presentations from different members of the organization that they'll get to understand that organization and I will tell you that is no way to govern if you don't walk that organization inside out you have no no responsibility for governing that organization.
2: I absolutely agree. Have it, again, having done it and having seen the bad decisions, mm. which is why yeah. I enter again. I, I go in when things are going wrong, and it's usually re- relatively apparent in in the very well-intended people on the board. So, not that they're bad people, but they aren't necessarily taught to be board members. They were pulled in because they did something else well, not govern well.
3: And I think then that's what we're going to in terms of leadership is that I can't ask anybody to do something that I'm not prepared to do myself. And so if we're not, and I think this is where the role of leaders is so critical, is that we have to lead by example. And I know just the same thing I said at the top of the show. We know this, but... How do we do it? And I think that if we're not prepared to uh, step into the unconventional, be unconventional in our own way, then we can't ask other people to come up with the next innovation.
2: You know, I'm going to take that as a transition point. First, can you give people a way to contact you? So assuming people want to come visit you on the Camino,
3: Yes, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm in Passos, P-A-S-S-O-S, Portugal. I am eight kilometers south of Valença, and uh, I am available. You can see me on Facebook at the Quinta Estrada Romana, or you can find us in English on the at the Beautiful boot.com.
2: Perfect. So the beautiful boot to find Leslie. Thank you. This is, it's just delightful. I feel like I'm talking to my best friend well, on the air. Well, true. That's
3: <laughs> true. We're good friends.
2: So, so I really appreciate you joining us. I want to recap some of the things I heard. Um, in this time of, of unprecedented change, what's required for us to move forward is beyond the conventional solutions that that we need to be open ourselves to being unconventional and then those solutions come through us. So using the example of Leslie walking the Camino de Santiago, emptying out, creating a space for something that was different, for the engineer going to an art museum and, and listening to a curator significantly outside of his frame of reference and, and thinking process opened him up to coming forward with something he wouldn't have before. As leaders, while we still need to go to traditional leadership classes and, and learn the latest thinking, we also need to consider how we can be different, be open to completely unconventional or unorthodox approaches to solving the problems that are unorthodox, that have not been faced before. And so for me to go back as a leader to just the old best practices or leading practices, things that are tried and true and have been effective with different problems, doesn't get me to the place I'm looking for to truly differentiate myself and my organization. What we're looking for is shifting mindsets. So I'd like to wrap up at this point. This is Maureen Metcalf, Innovative Leaders, Driving, Thriving Organizations. You can reach me at metcalf-associates.com or info at metcalf-associates.com if you want to email me. I would love to hear your feedback, your questions, ideas for new shows. We are doing a listener of the month drive. So if you have questions or comments, send them to me and I will pick from those and send the innovative leadership field book to one of our listeners. We are delighted to share what we know, Leslie and I both, and all of our guests with leaders who are looking to change the world. Together we will make the impact that we're trying to make and create a legacy for our children and our grandchildren of a world that is better and more thriving than the world in which we were born to. Thank you.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.